You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Motley Fool Money co-host Dylan Lewis here. If you're listening to us, it's because you love following the stock market and learning about business stories. If you're looking to keep learning and unlocking your potential, then you should check out the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast produced by our friends over at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that's received nearly 43 million downloads and is the number one career podcast in 95-plus countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression, to keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, Strong communication skills are important in business and life in general. That's why you'll hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, as well as speechwriter, best-selling author, and friend of the fool Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. All that and so much more available on the Think Fast Talk Smart podcast. So what are you waiting for? Listen every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Keep your mental health muscles strong with the Emotional Badass Podcast. I'm Nikki Eisenhower, your host, psychotherapist, and life coach. The Emotional Badass Podcast is your place to learn the mental health tips and tricks you need to build emotional resilience and practice mindfulness and gratitude. Join me every week for new episodes to reach a more grounded state of well-being as life brings its challenges. Search for Emotional Badass wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for being with us today on Her Money. We know that so much about our lives has changed over the last few months and perhaps nothing has changed more than our working lives. The most recent data from the Census Bureau shows that women are three times, three times more likely not to be working due to COVID-related care needs like childcare and schooling. And according to data from a survey from CareerBuilder, women are more likely to turn down a job if it doesn't offer work from home flexibility. 22% of women said they'd turn down a job compared to 13% of men. We also know now that many more people have the ability to work from home, not just because the pandemic necessitated it, but because corporate America is offering it. Postings for work-from-home jobs have gone up significantly over the past year. From March of 2020 to March of 2021, the number of jobs posted with those flexible work-from-home options went up by 200% at CareerBuilder. And anecdotally, I think we have all heard stories of people who have just decided to quit when their bosses called them back to the office and were inflexible about working from home. I have to say that lately we have been hearing a lot about how companies are having a hard time hiring and how top talent is being incentivized with some pretty amazing perks along with higher salaries. So what's really 
going on out there and what are employers looking for now? To dive into all of this with us today is Irina Novoselsky, the CEO of Career Builder, which is a global HR tech company that helps employers hire talent and helps job seekers build new skills and find their dream jobs. Irina, welcome. Hi, how are you? Excited to be here with you today, Jean. I'm really excited to have you, and I'm excited to hear a little bit about your personal story. I've read enough to know that your family came to America when you were very young, and today you're the first female CEO in the history of Career Builder. But I don't have much about the in between. Can you tell us a little bit? Definitely, first but not last. The in between, one of the things I say often is once you're an immigrant, that immigrant mentality stays with you. It stays in how you approach financials and how you approach career and, and really every aspect. And for me, really, so much of it from the beginning was having to work and understanding really the benefit and really the ability of what having a job can open up for you. And one of the things I, I talk about with my team a lot is the story when we came here with almost nothing, a few hundred dollars in our pocket. My parents are actually a lot older and they really had to start during a recession in the 80s figuring out how do they take their STEM-related jobs. My dad was an engineer, my mom's a chemist, translate that very unique skill set into English and then figure out how do you convert that into finding a job? And one of the things that I saw is the volume of applications. My dad, at the time I was helping him on a typewriter, he would type them up, I would mail the envelopes, and we would send them out hundreds and hundreds at a time. And I just remember when he got that first job for you know, a little over $20,000 a year, and things were getting pretty tough until he, he got that job, and that job changed our life. And one of the things that I was just so proud to come and lead at CareerBuilder was just understanding the value of how getting the right job and having the opportunity to equal employment and what an equalizer employment can be, and specifically how it changed my life, but how it can influence so many other lives that it was really exciting to be part of a company like that. And one of the things that I've historically really spent time on is how do I capitalize on my strengths? match that with things that I'm passionate about. And I have found that concoction of strengths plus passion really leads to some amazing results. And showing up to Career Builder and just seeing what our mission is of empowering employment is just really rare to find a company that has that kind of purpose. I'm so glad you put it that way because I've heard um, the advice time and time again, follow your passion. And I don't think it always works unless you marry it with your skill set. And I think that's an interesting difference because I also think your passion changes over your career and what you can be passionate about also evolves. And so early on in my career, financial independence was one of the biggest priorities. I was putting myself through school. I was working a hundred percent of the time while trying to be a full-time student. And my goals were a little different there. What I was valuing, what I was passionate about was financial independence and getting a job where I can learn skill sets that would set me up in a career. But again, really leveraging my strengths. And at the time, my strengths were I happened to be good at math. I happened to be having a strong financial skill set. I went to an undergrad 
business school. And so I was able to, again, marry those things. But as I evolved, my passions changed, but also my, my skill set evolved as well. And one of the things that we see, and we've actually invested a lot of money, and I'm really excited about our owners that allowed us to invest this in CareerBuilder and make this transformation, is about two years ago, we completely changed our matching algorithm. And this is something that a lot of people don't appreciate about Kruvild or what we actually did. But the analogy I'll give before explaining what that means is imagine Netflix would do your matching of movies based on title alone. Very quickly, you're going to not really enjoy what you're being matched to because you have a variety of things you want to see and it's not always in the title. And yet, the way that today's current matching algorithms work to connect candidates with jobs is based on title and experience. And there's so much in the middle of that. And I'll give you a great example is, let's say someone knows how to code in Java. You might not list every other language you know how to code in. And so when a company is looking for somebody that knows how to code in Hadoop, you will never show up in their match because you do not have that language written on your resume. And so one of the things that we saw because we've been around for 25 years, because we have this treasure chest of data, we were actually able to go back and say, hold on, we can innovate here. We can disrupt. We can do this in the way that, to be honest, almost every other segment of our consumer life has already adjusted to. It's time to bring this to HR and to job matching. And so we invested and pivoted and changed our matching algorithm to be skills first. I think it's such an important point. When I think back to, we get a lot of questions and, and we'll take some a little bit later in the show, but we get a lot of questions from our listeners who are looking to make a career change. And one of the pieces of advice that I've given over the years is to look at areas where hiring is happening. Look at healthcare, look at tech. And if you're a lawyer, maybe you apply those legal skills or those accounting skills or those coding skills to a hospital or to another part of a, a growing industry. And I can see how that would not always show up. Well, there's two interesting things. I'll give you one example exactly to what you said is when you think about what happened in the beginning of COVID, most flight attendants were laid off. There were no flights in the air. And so if you were doing a straight title or experience match, then you would have to go and say, I'm a flight attendant, find me another flight attendant job. There weren't many. However, if you do it based on your underlying skill set of communication, great under stress, good at problem solving, at customer relations, and when you take all of their underlying skill set and you actually look for a job that way, they're a 95% match to customer service positions which by the way, we're at an all-time high. During COVID. Yeah, if you're looking 100% on experience, you will never get access to this kind of talent, or as a candidate, you won't open your opportunity set to the possibilities of what you can do. Yeah, smart shift. It sounds like something that we should take advantage of when we're looking to make our next hire. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we have been hearing there's this shift in the market that companies are having a hard time hiring. What is actually going on? And can you flip the script and talk to how somebody who's a job seeker could actually use that hard time to their advantage? 
Yes. So from a macro perspective, a little bit, what are you talking about when you're saying a tough market? So to lay it out, this is really an imbalance we haven't seen for almost 50 years. And what I'm saying about that is supply is at an all-time high. So unemployment rate pre-COVID was about 3.5%. We're a little under 6 now. So we're almost double the unemployment, which means the supply of candidates out there. However, when you look and pair that with, we are now have jobs, companies have job postings that are higher than we've had pre-COVID. So we've now surpassed pre-COVID job growth. So there are lots of jobs, lots of candidates. What's the problem? Candidates aren't applying. We are at a 48 year low of candidates applying to jobs. And there's several things that are happening, which is just when you think about it, you have all these people, all these jobs, and then none of the matching is actually happening. And that has lots of impacts on us as a consumer. So lines are long, travel is more complicated. There's just the workforce isn't at work as much as it can be. And so what's driving that? There's a few things, and it's definitely not just one. A piece of it is that about 60 to 70% across schools in America are still hybrid in some form. And you started this conversation by saying that women are more likely to stay home, to be caretakers, to be taking care of the social responsibilities of their families. That impacts women significantly more, as we've seen through the data. But they're much more hesitant to re-enter the workforce when the school system is still not 100% back we're seeing that a whole generation has actually opted out of the workforce. So pre-COVID, we had this really unique five-generational workforce. And the generation that was really close to retirement during COVID, and you see it with the numbers, opted out and basically decided they're going to retire early and it just wasn't worth continuing to stay in in this uncertain time. And so we see this whole swath of the population remove themselves. We're also seeing moving go up. When you look overall, only 3% of the population has increased moving mobility. However, when you go under the onion a little bit, you start to see that in certain cities, it's 20 plus percent. And so a few things happen when you move. One, if you're moving from a higher tax rate to a lower tax rate, you need less income to still make the same amount of money so you can work less hours. Or two, as you're moving, you're not really looking to switch jobs. And one of the things that's really important that people don't talk about is about 50% of the hiring that happens is due to switchers. And so if you have a whole part of the population that is not willing to engage in switching their job, and even more so removing themselves out through early retirement, it really makes the dynamics complicated. Let me make sure I just understand those switchers because I'm not sure I actually get it. What you're basically saying is if I pick up and I move from my house in New York to Nevada, I might just keep my New York job. I'm not going to necessarily move to Nevada where it costs less to live and look for something new, right? Yes, and there are two main types of where companies can find candidates. Those that are unemployed which is we watch the unemployment, and then those that have a job that you entice to switch. And so one of those things that we're constantly working towards is about 50% of the hires come from the switching group, people who have a job who want to switch jobs. And they're really being impacted through all these other things that I mentioned as well, whether it's 
shared school, stay-at-home school, taking care of parents that are sick because of COVID, moving. One of the things that's really interesting is we've seen the highest quit rate. So people are going back into the workforce and pulling themselves out for various reasons, with flexibility one of being the highest one cited. How much of the work from home flexibility that you hear companies saying they'll continue, do you think is actually real? We know that when companies tell employees they have unlimited vacation, for example, very few people take more than a couple of weeks off each year. I'm just wondering if this is a blip. The way I would answer this is I'm, it depends on the war for talent and it depends who you're looking to hire. So to bring this full circle to the skills conversation we we're talking about, previously you were able to find someone if you were hiring 10 new people, you would look for 10 people that had the exact title and experience match of what you're looking for. That is no longer an option. Given the environment of this imbalance, for every nurse today, there's 50 job openings for one nurse. For every waitress, there's 23. For every software developer, it's in the 20s. So it's a different world. And so you are no longer looking for 10 people who have the exact skill set, exact title. Now you're looking for, out of the 10 you're looking to hire, four have a match on title and experience. The rest have 80% of the skill set. And that ties to flexibility as well, that if you are a company that you believe you need to have 100% workforce at work, that's great, but you will be limiting your candidate pool that you can draw from. And at some point, that no longer will be feasible as a go-forward option. So when we look at the industries where women should be able to get jobs in the coming months and the coming years, are they those industries that you just rattled off? Are we talking about nursing? Are we talking about coding? What are the other areas for growth? It's honestly across the board. There's imbalance in sales. There is an imbalance in accounting. When you look at categories right now, in, in some ways, it talks about how hard it is to hire for companies. You asked about what does this mean for job seekers? This is a great time if you're a job seeker that's looking to skip into a different role, to move horizontally into a different industry. If you're coming out of college, this is a great time to go and find a job that you maybe would not have been able to get before. Because again, companies are eager right now and in a position that they're looking for talent. And so to women, to candidates that are diverse, to students coming out of school, you actually really can pick based on your skill set what makes sense because almost every single job category in industry is looking for talent right now, which is honestly a really good place to be in. The other side of that is women and minorities are being disproportionately impacted by COVID. And so it's this balance where how do we make sure that our companies, when we come out of this, represent the markets we serve that are diverse in nature. And, and that responsibility really is both on us as employers to use the right tools and for candidates to go outside the box. It's no longer, have I done it? It's, can you do it? And that mentality shift is really important for both sides of the marketplace. As a candidate to push yourself, can you do it? Do you have the skills? As an employer to think a little bit outside the box. Hey, everybody, it's Jean. If you want to continue unlocking your potential, then you should also check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by our friends at Stanford Graduate School of Business. 
Think Fast Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that received nearly 50 million downloads. It's the number one career podcast in 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills from making small talk that leaves a big impression to keeping your nerves in check while speaking to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, strong communication skills are critical to business. All that and so much more is available on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Listen every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Emotional Badass is the weekly mental health and wellness podcast dedicated to empowering you with the emotional education so many of us crave. I'm Nikki Eisenhower, a psychotherapist with expertise in talk therapy, personal growth, and therapeutic healing. Join me every week on the Emotional Badass podcast as we delve into the heart of emotional wellness, tackling topics from stress management and coping strategies to the nuances of being highly sensitive. We navigate life's challenges, uncover the subtleties of gaslighting and manipulation, and confront narcissism head on. All the while, we learn to forge healthy boundaries that enrich both our personal and romantic relationships. With brand new content every Sunday and over 300 past episodes in our archive, there's something for everyone. Search for Emotional Badass wherever you get your podcasts. New and different and sometimes strange post-COVID working and hiring landscape. So we've all heard about companies most specifically Facebook, but I know there are others that have said, if you're going to live outside of the high-priced area where perhaps we first hired you or where perhaps we're based, we may pay you less. Are you seeing that in your data? And do you think that's the way of the future? We are hearing it, but we are not seeing it yet in our data. One of the things that we actually are seeing is a little bit of wage inflation start. So we are starting to see both on the lower end wages. So on average, hourly used to be somewhere between 11 to $15. We're now seeing that outside of unemployment benefits really push up to 15, 16, even 30 in certain cases. And some of our clients are offering free iPhones, free appetizers if you apply for some of these food chains. We're starting to see some funding for tuition. It's starting to get some really interesting offers to get people to apply. On the other side, we're seeing companies actually offering more, even on the middle to higher wage side, more dollars to get the right talent in the door. And so while there's definitely been companies that have been talking about, especially in certain fields, if you're moving out of certain cities that are known for those industries, whether it's finance or Silicon Valley, that there will be adjustments in comp, we're actually seeing wages continue to go up across the board right now as this imbalance continues. It really feels like it's about time, doesn't it? Well, it's interesting that one of the things that we are seeing, and this goes back also to skills and pushing people into the right, out of their comfort zone to find the right job for them, both on both sides. One of the things, and you alluded to this earlier on as well, but there's this interesting dynamic that happens with men and women when they apply for jobs when they don't have 100% of that experience. 
And we've seen the data that men are more likely to apply to a job if they have 60% of the skill set, they will apply. Women need to have that skill set be around 90%. And so that only exacerbates a dynamic. If you don't use the right technology, then you're going to have potentially not very qualified people apply to certain roles. And so one of the things we've spent a lot of time on is actually instead of putting that onus on the candidate to have to apply, at Corolla we actually push it to the candidate. So we'll say, Gene, based on your skill set, we think these 10 jobs you are fit for. And your likelihood of saying, yes, apply me, is much higher when I position them to you instead of you having to go out and be proactive, especially with women and minorities as we do research. Would you advise women to try to adopt that male mentality to, as they're surveying the landscape, not just on CareerBuilder, but everywhere, to say, I know that a lot of the people and a lot of the men that are applying for this job do not check all the boxes and I'm not going to hold myself to that standard and just force ourselves to fake it till we make it? I don't know if it's fake it till you make it. I think when technology does something to say, Gene, you have most of these skills and eight of the 10 skills necessary to apply, it gives you a little confidence to say, okay, I can do it. And the fake it till you make it can be one of the things you tell yourself, but one of the things that we've seen, especially with women, is if it's put in front of them where you're told you can do it, the likelihood they will do it is a lot higher. And we've seen that with mentorship and advocates at work for women get promoted more. We've seen that with various types of data. And so this is just another point of how do you put yourself in a position so that you can at least be recommended those jobs and apply. One of the things I talk about with my team a lot, there's this really big power to just putting yourself out there. And the worst that can happen is no. Mm -hmm. And it sounds really scary before you do it, but it's just two letters, it's one word, it's quick, and then you move on and you try something else. And I think it's that mentality, not just for candidates, I think for clients too, put yourself out there to get this kind of talent. Because there are some really unique skill set matches that can happen that you wouldn't get exposure to normally. And the worst thing that can happen is if it's not a match. Great. One of the things that we do when it's not a match, we'll take that background and say, you know what? You might not have been a match for this job, but you are for this other job because we liked you on your personality, your culture fit, you have the right attitude. So now you've found actually a candidate, but you've got to find the right seat on the bus for them. A hundred percent. I was talking about this with my daughter just yesterday. A friend of hers applied for a job, went through seven rounds of interviews, didn't get it, but got a call from the company after the fact and said, we are going to have other things coming up and we're going to try to make a match. We're going to try to find a slot for you. It's not that we didn't like you. You just weren't the best candidate for this particular job. So we call that silver medalists. And we have a whole product that focuses on that because if you think about very relevant with the Olympics, hopefully coming shortly, the difference between gold and silver in many cases is a millisecond. And so it can be very similar with a company. If they have one role and two candidates, it's a coin flip sometimes. 
And so one of the things we work with our successful clients say, you've now spent, to your example, all this time interviewing this candidate. It's productivity hours from the company. The candidate now has a feel for you and your culture and your brand, and they're excited. And normally what happens, this candidate just gets thrown back into the ocean and you take your chances on figuring out, will they apply for the perfect job for them next time? Versus what we do is infuse a little tech into this and say, well, hold on, we've already got most of the match. We just got to try a little bit more to find the right job. And so we take them, put them into essentially a community, a talent network, and we keep re-engaging them. Similar to your daughter's friend to say, you fit all these other skills. Here's another job. Try this job. And you keep working those silver medalists because you already have so many of the criteria fit. Uh, can we talk a little bit about Black women, Hispanic, Latinx women? We know they were hit harder by the pandemic. Black women lost more jobs during the downturn than any other demographic. Are you seeing a recovery starting? The recovery started several months ago, but it definitely is coming back at a slower pace. And one example is we talked about how pre-COVID unemployment is about three and a half percent and we're under six percent now. We started getting to about six and under several months ago while black unemployment was actually at nine percent. And so we've started coming down, but it is still much more than two times higher than what it was pre-COVID for both black, Hispanic, and other minorities. So we are seeing the percent decline, it's just not declining as much as it is for men or even for white women and men. If you're a company and you want to hire a black woman, you know, you're actively looking to make a, a bigger commitment to diversity, to equity, to inclusion, how do you go about it from that side? I have to bring it back to skills and it, it seems like how could you be talking about skills again but it goes back to this if you hire exactly people that have had the title and experience you're keeping your pool really small because we know that there's certain functions jobs industries that are predominantly male that are predominantly white and you're not expanding that pool by continuing to look for the same experience and same title it's only when you start looking, can this person do the job? Not only does it expand your candidate pool, it actually expands the diversity of your pool. And we've seen this with statistics and data across Caribolder and our clients that the minute they're using skills-based matching as part of their job search, they're increasing double digits, their diversity candidates. We've seen it at Builder. My leadership team is almost 50-50 male-female. My company at Gribbleder is almost 50-50 male-female. Our diversity stats are great and, and growing and 30 plus percent. And a lot of it is we eat our own dog food, sip our own champagne, or whatever analogy you want to use. But it's thinking a little bit outside of have you done it before? So... To flip this equation, if we're thinking about the resume that we all start with, right? Should we have skills-based resumes rather than more traditional resumes? How do we package ourselves to appeal to employers and to say, this is my skill set, look at me? Yes. And it starts from even small things. So let's say you had to come out of the workforce to take care of your parents. That's a skill set. 
That's patience. That's coordination. That's the project management, depending what you were doing. And it's thinking about what you were doing in that form of skill set. Let's say you were a stay-at-home mom. We're seeing some of that where stay-at-home moms are re-entering the workforce, and it's hard because they put a gap on their resume. Okay, but there's a lot of things that you were coordinating as a mom. How do you include those skill sets on your resume? And it's a lot of times one of the things that, that we spend a lot on tech is helping candidates identify what their skill sets are. Because one of the things we saw is they, they do it because it's so natural to them. They don't realize that, wow, there's communication involved in this. I'm actually selling, even though this isn't a sales job. I'm actually storytelling, even though I'm not in marketing. And so we have tools that help pull that out of you. But Gene, I think you hit it nail on the head is how do you stop and evaluate what are the underlying skills of what I'm doing and everything you are doing, whether it's volunteering, school, a job or a non-paying job, you're getting skills. Irina, this is just, it's great information for all of our listeners. I think no matter where they are, in their career, whether they're thinking of making a switch, whether they're just getting started. It's a different way of looking at it, and I appreciate you taking us through it. I wanted to impose on you for just a few minutes because we have a mailbag section. It comes next in our show, and the questions that we have for today really relate to everything you've been talking about. So are you okay to stick with me for just a couple of minutes? Okay, fantastic. Our first question comes to us from Sophia, and she writes, I am so glad to have found your podcast. I'm a 32-year-old single woman who comes from an upper-middle-class family where I was always told that hard work alone is the most important thing to secure a financially abundant future. I've never been given guidance by my parents on saving for retirement or even just for saving money at all. In fact, quite the opposite. My dad, who was our sole provider, always encouraged me to spend money on anything and everything that made me happy or curious. It's taken turning 30, a career change, and the pandemic for me to fully realize how unprepared I am with no financial strategy. I'm currently working a mid entry-level office job that I took during the pandemic so I could pay my bills and have health insurance, but I am not engaged in this work and truly don't want to be here after I get the standard year-end bonus. My passion is food. I worked in restaurants before the pandemic, and I intend to start my own business in the future as well as do some traveling overseas if it's allowed next year. This would mean I'd have little to no salary and certainly no benefits. I've always looked at my money as a tool to explore my interests and make my life richer. I've never considered how to use it to fund my retirement. I started putting some money into an Acorns account a few years ago, and it actually recently hit $9,000, which kind of blows my mind. That's twice the amount my car is worth. At this point, I really don't know what to do next. My finances are in a slump this summer as I recently moved and I have quite a few weddings to participate in and provide gifts for, so I'm feeling anxious about leaving this job and losing a regular salary and health insurance. I currently make $65,000 a year. I own my car. I have $37,000 in savings, which I was hoping to use to either lease a restaurant space or pay my bills while I build a portfolio of freelance work and or travel. Obviously, I'm still deciding what I want my next five to 10 years to look like. I pay off my credit card bill every month in full and always have and recently got a points reward card for the first time. Where do you suggest I start? So 
Irina, listening to this, and there's a lot there, and, and we love how our listeners tell us everything. It's fantastic. Listening to this listener, my first thought is, please don't quit your day job until you know where you want to go. But I wonder if that's the advice that the CEO of Career Builder would give. So strategically in listening, I would say great that she has a goal and that is the best way to start. And now let's work backwards. So if the goal is to open up your own restaurant, how do you figure out what are the skills that you need to do that? It sounds like being able to run a business, lead a team, hire a team, be able to plan a menu, organize marketing for it, all these things that you need to open and successfully run a business. And then map out what are the skills that she thinks she has today in her current job. And there will be a gap. And it's that gap that she has to figure out, is there a middle step that can happen? So if she has a one skill set gap, then she can probably push it and figure out how to do it without. Most likely, she probably has a little bit of a bigger gap. And so the, the middle step is really critical. And it's a very strategic step to figure out to say, okay, I'm really good at these five skills, but I don't really know what it takes to do this opening up your own restaurant. Should I become a manager at a restaurant? Should I work for a restaurant chain? and figure out how to run the marketing for it or the management for it or whichever of the skill sets she believes she still needs to gain and then pivot to find a job that allows her to do that. We see it often, especially starting a business, you're taking your financials, your savings and you're putting in, that is high risk. How do you mitigate that a little bit and really expand your skill set so that when you show up and say, okay, I'm ready, I have eight of the 10 skills I need or seven of the 10 skills, you feel good about that. And it's, it's doing a little bit of a self checklist to see where you are at the dance and what else you need to fill that. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I would also say you have to get a grip on what the cost of opening a restaurant is going to look like. And if you are self-funding, how much of a runway that savings that you've built up, which is considerable, will actually give you because it may not go as far as you think and you need it to last you long enough to make sure that you have time to do the necessary marketing, get the customers starting to come, getting them starting to come back and hiring the staff that you need. Okay, one more, Irina, and good luck to you, Sophia. Next question is from an anonymous listener. She writes, thanks for continuing to provide such informative and empowering podcasts. I especially appreciate the discussions and guidance on salaries and raises, which leads me to my question. In January, I had my annual review with my boss, who's the CEO, and it was all very positive. He acknowledged all the extra new responsibilities I took on in 2020 related to the pandemic and launching a charitable foundation for our company, which includes chairing a board, fundraising, grant writing, and communications. He said that I was among a couple others on the management team who deserved more than the annual 3% salary increase. However, he cited the PPP loan as the reason he could not honor a larger salary increase as 
He was afraid of how it would look in an audit. Our company received approximately $3 million in PPP funding but deferred it to 2021. Our CFO says it may take up to six months for this loan to be forgiven. Our company is now facing increased expenses, and I wonder if the timing will ever be right to revisit the salary increase discussion, even though I continue to manage a higher workload. Given the additional responsibility of managing the company's new charitable foundation on top of my regular responsibilities, I feel I have a very strong case for a salary increase. My question is whether it's fair to make the case for the salary increase and ask for it to be retroactive to January when I had my review. Is a potential PPP audit a valid reason not to increase my salary? I feel like I have FOMO syndrome over the salary I should have been earning. Thank you so much for your guidance. Really interesting, especially at these times. What do you think, Irina? It's hard to comment on the PPE because without knowing the financials of the company or the situation they were in, but one of the things I I would say is retroactive or not is a little different. What do do they believe is the right salary that they should be getting? And that's a combination of doing some research, going out there and seeing what are jobs getting paid for the role that she's doing. And there's two parts. One is arming her boss, her CEO, with this information. Say, look, I've done some diligence. Here's what the market rate for me is, and here's what I would like to make. And in that, they can include the retroactive part without going retroactive. So for example, if the ask is $12 for the whole year, and he would like it to start Jan 1, then ask for 16 and have it appropriate start whenever it makes sense, May or whatnot. But it's really important to inform not only your boss, but also yourself so you understand what it is you're working with. And so really doing some market research to say, is what you're asking for market rate or is it just what you think you should be getting paid? And that's okay either way, but you can make a much more informed argument when you have data at your fingertips. 100%. I also think you should be looking for a job. I think this is one of those situations where it sounds to me, just reading between the lines, like you're being taken advantage of. And I would be out there looking. Maybe you love this job. Maybe you don't want to leave. But would you be willing to leave for a position that paid you more and made you feel more, more valued? My guess is that if you come to your now boss with an offer in doing essentially two jobs by launching this foundation, you have made yourself so valuable that they will match it. But at that point, you may feel like you're more valued elsewhere, and that can be fine too. Agree. And the other thing is also understanding what is it that you value in the priority matrix. Where does the salary fall, maybe you have really flexible hours now, maybe you have a flexible work environment, maybe they're good benefits. How do you look at the entire package and really rate that and prioritize that so that you're not getting higher salary, but you're sacrificing all these other things that are important? And how do you make sure to optimize for everything? Irina, you are fantastic. Thank you so much for helping us, for helping our listeners, for being with us today. I hope you'll come back again. I would love to. This is a great conversation and it's actionable advice that 
people can take and, and do things to manage their career. It's exciting to be a part of. Thank you, Jean, for having me. Absolutely. And we'll be right back with your Thrive segment. In today's Thrive, saving money while working from home. Being thrown into remote work during the pandemic definitely brought some challenges, but it also had upsides, and a big one was saving money. 38% of U.S. adults who worked from home at some point during the pandemic say the work arrangement had a positive effect on their finances, a new bank rate survey found. Why? Remote work freed up some workers to relocate to less expensive areas, as Irina was just talking about, and that can offer substantial savings. With that said, younger generations were more likely than older ones to report financial benefits to working from home. The survey found that 60% of millennials aged 25 to 40 and adult Gen Zers aged 18 to 24 reported that remote work was good for their finances. Only 50% of Gen Xers, those aged 41 to 56, and 47% of boomers aged 57 to 75 said the same. We know that remote work can help you save on commuting costs, lunches out, even impulse purchases that you might make when walking past stores. But it's also possible to spend more. Online shopping could easily become an all-too-frequent hobby when you're between Zoom meetings, and you may have additional expenses for technology, utility bills, even internet. No matter what your working situation is today, getting on a budget can help you keep everything in line. And one of my favorite pieces of advice to pay yourself first can be helpful when you're doing your planning. Set aside your savings for retirement and other big life goals first before you think about how much you can afford for daily or weekly expenses. And whether you're still working from home or you're heading into the office every day, never, never underestimate the power of meal prep. It is so easy to just drop 20 bucks on lunch from a restaurant and over the course of the month, that really adds up. And we also know that when we cook at home, we consume fewer calories. So it's a win-win for your health and your wallet. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Irina Novoselsky, CEO of Career Builder, for walking us through the new realities of seeking a job and getting hired in a post-COVID world. If you are looking for a job, I just want to say all of us at Her Money are rooting for you. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll talk soon. Keep your mental health muscles strong with the Emotional Badass Podcast. I'm Nikki Eisenhower, your host, psychotherapist, and life coach. The Emotional Badass Podcast is your place to learn the mental health tips and tricks you need to build emotional resilience and practice mindfulness and gratitude. Join me every week for new episodes to reach a more grounded state of well-being as life brings its challenges. Search for Emotional Badass wherever you get your podcasts.